This is Chapter 139 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a novel that reimagines Henry VIII as a 21st century womanizing media mogul. A female spy novel set on the streets of post-war London and Paris, plus a modern-day thriller that will have you hooked by page one. England's King Henry VIII is probably best known for having six wives. If you can never seem to remember the fate of those women, try this. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Catchy, right? Well, Henry meets the 21st century and the Me Too movement in Wife After Wife, the new novel from author Olivia Hayfield. She joined our Marla Diamond by phone from New Zealand. So the book jacket reads a wickedly entertaining modern take on the life and marriages of Henry VIII as if he were a 21st century womanizing media mogul rather than the king of England. Uh, We've been watching another media mogul very closely here in New York City who's on trial for sexual assault. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, you don't have to look very far to find some modern parallels to King Henry VIII. Uh, cutting the, a larger-than-life figure. Is, is that uh, what you were thinking uh, when you thought about the premise for this book? Yes, totally. I mean, I started writing it um, two years ago, which was the height of all the media coverage uh, of the Me Too movement. Um, so it was very much inspired by the abuse of power by certain men who were in the media. I won't name names, but um, I'm sure that you get the general picture. So yes, it was, I was pondering on the whole, uh, has, have things changed over the years? You know, have we really come on that far? Men are still behaving like this to women. And then it just popped into my head, well, they're like Henry VIII. Um, and then I sort of took that idea forward. What if Henry VIII lived today, how would that behavior go down? And would those strong women that he married put up with that behavior or would they kick back and how would it all pan out? And as soon as I had the idea, I just thought, oh, I have to write this and and see what happens. And honestly, it almost wrote itself. Um, It was just such a a gift at the time with all the Me Too movement going on. So yes, definitely inspired by... Um, that person and other similar men with bad attitudes to women. Henry VIII's story and the unfortunate story of his six wives is one that a lot of us know very well. So you had to really uh, be accurate here. Do you you take some liberties with the story? I do. Um, Yes, so I did lots and lots of research. Um, I, I grew up with the whole Henry VIII story, um, being English, and he's very much part of our heritage, so he's always there in, in your mind. So um, I did take liberties because as I researched him, I mean, I've always thought of him as a, a very, you know, a awful person, and I really wanted to bring him down in my, I wanted to reincarnate him and bring him down, you know, give him his comeuppance. But when I started to research him, I realized that at the start of his reign, he was actually quite an amazing person. He was very, very intelligent. He was a deep thinker. um, And he was very athletic. He was very hot, very good looking, extremely tall for for the times, over six foot, which was unusual then. Um, So 
I was one, I, my question I asked myself was what turned this really quite amazing person into this obese, horrible tyrant that he became. So I started off, I was going to tell the same story and I was going to have my Harry Rose doing, sort of becoming that tyrannical person. But then I sort of thought about what turned Henry bad. And it was really his, his absolute power and his health issues. I mean, the poor man um, had this dreadful leg injury that would never heal. So he was in terrible pain a lot of the time later in life. And I thought, well, if those two things now, you know, his leg would get better. He would, his wives wouldn't let him overeat <laughs> and drink too much. Um, they'd, they'd keep him on the straight and narrow. And he wouldn't have the absolute power. So my version is very much a sort of toned down version of Henry VIII, a much much nicer one. And he still behaves terribly. But the women in his life sort of pull him back on track and take him to task. And yes. Two of Henry VIII's wives met a very unfortunate end, Olivia. Is there a modern day beheading in the book? <laughs> Um, no, I, I had to think very hard um, because I decided right at the start that, that the story would parallel what happened to Henry's wives. But um, I, so I, without giving too much away, they do have a demise, but it's not beheading. And um, I wanted my I wanted the readers to sort of stay on side with Harry to some extent. I wanted them to be sort of shaking him by the shoulders and saying, you know, pull yourself together, man, because I had to give a reason for these six strong women to stick with this man, you know, to love him. Um, so I didn't want him murdering them as Henry murdered two of his wives. I wanted him to be more sort of responsible for their deaths. Um, so it's more subtle than beheading. So no, nobody loses a head. And I <laughs> And in the beginning of the book, you, you list the cast of characters. So if you are yeah. familiar with the story of Henry VIII, you have a woman. Uh, each wife is based on uh, one of the wives of, of Henry VIII. And did you have a favorite wife in this book? Yes. Um, I've always been a, a big fan of Anne Boleyn. Um, she's definitely the most intriguing of his wives. Um, she was very much... I just, just have to forgive the pun here, but she was very much ahead of her time. Um, she was a reformist and um, she was a very, very strong woman, um, which is sort of, she, so she stood out to me as the most interesting of the six wives. And she really divides opinion. And if you read, you know, just Facebook groups, uh, there are whole Facebook groups devoted to her. And there are people on a daily basis just arguing all the time, you know, was she a victim of her own ambition? Was was she a good person? Was she a bad person? Was she, you know, did she use witchcraft? And um, just a really, really interesting person. Um, but towards, as I wrote the book, I think in the end, Henry's sixth wife, um, Catherine Parr, I decided she was the most interesting of, of all of them. Um, she was the first woman in Britain to have a book published under her own name. So that kind of stood out to me. She was very, very intelligent. And so, you know, I think Henry VIII was pretty good at, at picking interesting wives. It was just a shame how he treated them, really. In the end, 
Anne, I would say Anne and Catherine were well, my two favourites. And Catherine Howard, who I have as um, Caitlin Howe, she's the, the, the tragic one. She's re- her story is really, really sad. She was 19 when she married Henry VIII, and he was, I think he was almost 50. Um, so it was just horrible. She was sort of thrown at his feet, this beautiful young girl, by her ambitious family because they sort of wanted to pull Henry back towards the Catholic faith and she was Catholic. So her downfall was kind of engineered. It wasn't just her behaviour. It was people that were anti, you know, anti-Catholic as well. It's religion always comes into it in those days. So she fascinated me as well. And, and her story is just terribly, terribly sad. Yes. And uh, Harry Rose is the King Henry, uh, King Henry VIII character. He is a, a scoundrel, uh, head of a <laughs> media conglomerate in London, handsome, charming, intelligent, yep. and arrogant. And you write, women just can't help themselves. So uh, <laughs> Harry uh, is in the, you know, in the, in the form of, of King Henry VIII, but he uh, doesn't meet his demise at the end of the book. No, he doesn't. No. Um, I'm, I'm afraid I have to confess that I fell a bit in love with my main character because I started off wanting to hate him. And then as I carried on writing, I like I said before, I actually thought there's a lot more depth to this person. Um, so I sort of got to know him pretty well. And his behavior is terrible, but I've tried to not excuse it, but more to explain it where it might be coming from. And this was the real challenge for me was to have the reader not not hating him, to, to, for him to for them to want him to change and to sort of see the error of his ways. Um, And in the reviews that are coming in, what really makes me happy is I've got people saying, I really want to hate this man, but I can't. (laughs) And that's exactly what I was hoping for. So yes, at, at the end, he has, well, I don't want to give too much away, but it's not a particularly happy ending for him because I didn't think he deserved that. But it's not as bad as I originally planned. And my editors, I have, so I have my London editor for the UK edition and my American one. Um, they had very strong views on, on the ending and they were different views. And so I had, when the American editor first read it, she said, oh, come on, you've got to give this man more of a comeuppance. Um, so I had to rewrite the ending for about the third time to sort of find an ending that both editors would be happy with. And I, I got there in the end and readers are liking the ending. So I, I'm glad that they kind of both thought very hard about what we should do at the end to, for this man. Well, it, yeah. it it's a delicious uh, reading, even if you are not intimately familiar with King Henry VIII, and it is on store shelves, Wife After Wife, author Olivia Hayfield. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you in New York. Yeah, I hope to come there one day. Little by little, we're learning about the outsized role female spies played during World War II. Women like Virginia Hall, Nancy Wake, and Odette Samson Hallows were on the ground in Europe, working to keep the Allies ahead and the Nazis at bay. It's this rich history that inspired Spitfire, the debut thriller from M.L. Huey. 
he sets the story up for us. Spitfire is about a young British woman, uh, Libby Nash. Uh, it takes place uh, in post-World War II Europe. Uh, Libby was a spy during World War II. Her war ended very badly, and when this book opens, she's suffering from what we might call PTSD or depression over the way her war ended. Um, she's working a third-rate job, spending her nights with bad black market vodka, uh, when into her life walks Ian Fleming, the man who would go on to create James Bond uh, and offers her a proposition that changes her entire life. What prompted you to write about this particular moment in espionage history, the straddling between World War II and the start of the Cold War? Yeah, um, I read a terrific uh, fiction book called Codename Verity by a woman named Elizabeth Wein, W-E-I-N, and found out that during World War II, the British recruited amateurs, trained them as spies, and then dropped them behind enemy lines in occupied countries. And a large number of those spies were women. And so I then started reading you know, the nonfiction accounts of uh, some of their lives and exploits during the war and what happened to them after the war. And I thought, you know, I've seen a lot of books that were written during wartime. I, it might be interesting to explore what happens to one of these women post-war. I think a lot of people might be surprised by that fact. And also, you know, giving Livy Nash this PTSD makes a lot of sense because these women did these heroic events. They weren't allowed to talk about it because of uh, the Espionage Act that they had to sign. And they had to come back to be housewives and secretaries and, and anything else that women were doing at the time. Absolutely. And that's one of the, the things that really fascinated me is I thought, you know, these women were not even given a foot in the door with the intelligence community after the war. Um, and I thought, well, what if one of these women, and as many of them were, were exceptional at their uh, jobs during the war, even thrived on it? Um, you know, how uh, how would she feel? Uh, and so uh, I guess it's not a spoiler to say that Livy, Livy gets to go um, uh, back to Paris, where her war ended, and uh, try to find this, this traitor uh, who killed the man she loved during the war. Now, you mentioned her boss happens to be the very real Ian Fleming. What drew you to him and his exploits? Well, I have to admit I've been a, a James Bond fan uh, a long time. <laughs> I've read all the Bond novels. Um, and um, Ian Fleming was in, in intelligence during um, World War II, but afterwards he um, ran foreign correspondence for the Sunday London Times, among other newspapers, and he said that some of those correspondents were spies. And I thought, hmm, that's a perfect match. Uh, having said that, though, Livy is by no means a quote-unquote Bond girl. Um, she is, uh, is working class. She's very tough. She's very direct. And so putting her opposite Fleming uh, sort of plays up the, the class difference between the two of them, uh, which I thought might also be fun. Did you learn anything interesting in the research that you had to do for this book, whether about him or the, the time period in general or even these female spies? Lots. Uh, lots. Um, in fact, one tidbit of information, um, <laughs> my, uh, I've, I've had two agents, my first agent said, that's not believable, that can't happen. <laughs> that in World War II, that these um, spies actually placed bombs in dead rats. And so, uh, yeah, things like that. I mean, just uh, some of the amazing things that uh, these folks did, uh, you know, especially some of the women and a couple of instances I've used those exploits uh, for Livy as well. Can we look forward to more Livy Nash novels to come? Absolutely. The second book in the series is coming out uh, later in this year. It's scheduled for a September release right now. 
And do you have a title for that one, or is it still under wraps? Oh, yes. It's called Nightshade. Ooh. And we should mention that Spitfire <laughs> refers to Livy's nickname that she earned during the war. Yes, yeah, yeah. The Germans give her a nickname, uh, which is also actually based on on, uh, on, on fact. Um, and her nickname they give her is uh, Spitfire. So it's not a uh, it's not a, a story about uh, aerial dogfights or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, M. L. Huey, I thoroughly enjoyed Spitfire, and I think anybody else who's a fan of troubled yet spunky uh, independent women who don't mind speaking their mind will be fans as well. Thank you so much. Benjamin Franklin once said, three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. You might want to keep that in mind while reading Last Day, the new thriller from Connecticut-born author Luann Rice. The gripping family drama hinges on secrets between sisters, secrets between friends, and secrets between lovers. I recently got to chat with her about the book that opens with a gruesome murder and a stolen painting. I've never been more drawn into a book from its first pages and then also totally shocked by its ending. Did did you know where the story was going to end when you first started writing last day? I had no idea. I, I let the characters tell the story when I'm writing, and I thought I knew who, who did it, but I didn't. I was very surprised. And I read somewhere that you started with one of the sisters, and it wasn't the one I thought it was. You started writing with Kate and not Beth. I did. I did. I, I wanted to write about the love that sisters have for each other. And I just imagined what it would be like to go to see your sister and find that she's been murdered. And we're not giving anything away because that literally does happen in, within the first two pages of the book. Right. Exactly. And it, it's based um, it's based loosely on a, a real life murder that affected my family. It was both very much in my heart, and it was also something I was trying to leave behind because I wanted it to be something that, you know, that it was my own story and it wasn't a real story that it actually happened. That had to be difficult to write, regardless of the fact that it's fiction. It was. It brought back a lot of memories. And, you know, my my husband and his daughter ended up being witnesses in the trial. I attended the trial every day, and this was quite a few years ago, but it has taken a long time for me to be ready to write about it. And do you feel now that you've committed it to the page, you're, you're able to move on past it? I'm sure it will always be part of us. Um, it was too big for it not to, but I do feel as if I've written it now, and that's enough. I, when it first happened, I wrote an article, a nonfiction article for Glamour magazine, and that was an interesting for me because I don't usually do nonfiction, but Having sat in the trial and felt it so strongly, I said I just needed to sort of get it out there. This one was this book was a little bit different. I felt like it was more um, thoughtful, and you know, and the characters who I created really it was their book, not not the news story. Along with this murder, we have friendships between some lifelong friends and secrets, and they all play a really big part in the book. And I can't help but wonder to myself. Are relationships ever completely honest? Oh, well, I think everybody has secrets. You know, even the people that you're closest to, and they're allowed to. I mean, it, I think it can be threatening when you find out that there's been something very, very big that your best friend or your sister hasn't told you. But we all do it. You know, I think in this case, it's an, it's more extreme, and it's something that 
affects the entire group of best friends and sisters. And, it, and especially when somebody has died where you can't confront them or you can't help them or there's really no answer to it. Uh, I think that that was extremely hard for Kate. Art collection happens to be a major plot point, and I love the cover under the book jacket. By the way, I, that was a nice that was a nice little surprise when if you if you decide that you want to take the cover off. <laughs> I was surprised too. It was like a it was like a Christmas present when I received the the first copies of the hardcover, and I glanced under, and I was really really shocked and happy. And some people have had me sign their books in that surprise. I won't give it away, but. Um, Instead of on the title page, they've asked me to sign that. That's genius. I love that idea. (laughs) (laughs) So what sort of research did you have to do for the book to get the art part of it right? My mother was an artist, and so we always had an easel in our kitchen, and, and she was always in the middle of an oil painting. She also took us to museums when we were young, and the one in particular in Old Bond, Connecticut, the Florence Griswold, that is really phenomenal, and it's Old Bond is the birthplace of American Impressionism. In my book, Old Bond is called Black Hall. And I actually have a series of novels where Black Hall is the setting. But I, you know, I go to the Florence Griswold quite often, and there's a gallery in town, the Cooley Gallery, that has this phenomenal co- collection. And I, I go there, too. And I just, I think I absorb it. You know, it's like, I don't know how, how you view art, but I feel like just standing in front of it. And letting the paintings tell a story, um, the, the painting in the novel Moonlight doesn't exist. I I made that up, and I made up the artist. But I do love night scenes, and that the impressionists did. And I I love the way they depict moonlight. It's really mysterious and just so compelling and romantic. Do you dabble in painting yourself? No, I have no talent whatsoever. <laughs> Both my sisters do. They're really great artists and but I don't I, I just wish I did though after reading the the such vivid description of that painting moonlight that's in the book I feel that someone needs to do a real life rendering oh I love that idea maybe one of my sisters can <laughs> <laughs> ask them really really nicely <laughs> yes I know please <laughs> there's a very famous painting called May Night of Miss Florence who ran a boarding house for the artist here in in Old Lyme um, around the turn of the last century. And it's it's this beautiful yellow house, and it's depicted in this painting that was at the Corcoran for years. Uh, I think it's now in the National Gallery, but it shows this woman running up t- toward the steps of this house. And it's just, you really want to know where, where is she coming from? Who's waiting inside? And it, the, moon's, the moonlight is dappling through the leaves, and it's just so evocative. So uh, I, I'd like my sister to paint something like that, <laughs> a masterpiece. <laughs> and I know, too, uh, you mentioned a little bit having that connection to Connecticut, and I think it really comes across how close you are to that particular setting. Thank you. I grew up here. I was born and raised here. And as you know, I I lived a lot of other places. I, I moved to New York when I was young. My, my mentor was Brendan Gill from The New Yorker magazine, and he told me, and he too was from Connecticut, and he said, if you want to have a literary life, you have to live in New York City. So I took him at his word, and I lived in Chelsea for many years, and I lived in Paris, and I lived in Malibu, California, but my my work is always, almost always, centered in on the Connecticut shoreline, and eventually... I decided I just need to move back there, and I and I did. 
So I, you know, I'm closer to my family and to just this landscape that feels like home. And I guess as Dorothy says, there's no place like home. It's really true. It turns out to be true. I mean, Thomas Wolfe said you can't go home again, but I think you can. You've spent a few years away from adult fiction writing young adult books, and I think that really comes across in your character of Sam, who's the the teenage girl, the daughter uh, in this particular book. Did you have to shake off the cobwebs a little bit with this return? No, I I don't think I did. I, I wrote so many novels before I did the three young adult books. And, you know, it felt normal and natural. It felt great, actually, to, to write, um, I guess, regular adult fiction again. But I, about young characters in my books, not so much front and center as the young adult books, but I enjoy writing, I guess, all age groups. So what can we expect from you next? Well, another thriller. And it's, it also centers on a family. And it's all also inspired by a real case. um, It's some of the same characters. Detective Connor Reed returns and his brother Tom Reed, who's a commander in the the Coast Guard. And some of the other characters that were sort of played a smaller role in Last Day will be back. Well, that makes me excited. I I fell in love with all the characters. Uh, Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And I'm sure it means a lot to the characters as well. I'll tell them. (laughs) Oh, please do. (laughs) Send send them my love. Will. We've been talking to Luann Rice. The new book is Last Day. Go out to a bookstore, pick it up, even if it's just to peek under the cover, but hopefully they'll pick it up and buy it too. Yes, I want to hear what they think about the, the actual book cover if they do peek under the jacket. Thanks for your time today, Luann. Thank you so much. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time, we travel to Poland with Steve Barry and his protagonist, Cotton Malone, where yet another UNESCO World Heritage Site finds itself on the center of all the action. That Cotton has built quite the reputation of leaving places a little less pristine than he found them. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.